So I want you to picture me sitting in the passenger seat of my partner's car. The car is parked up on a residential street on the outskirts of Essex. It's winter, December, there's no heating in the car, so I'm wearing like five layers. My partner, she's gone into one of the houses on the street. It's a house where some friends of ours live. And this happened quite a while ago, so the details are a little hazy. I think the purpose of the trip was to drop off some money. Obviously, I was supposed to go into the house as well, but then, for some reason, I ended up staying behind. I just couldn't bring myself to get out of the vehicle. And I should say, right, you know, it had uh, it had nothing to do with whoever was living in that house. It was just somewhere on the journey over, I'd been hit by a wave of social anxiety. And, uh, and as a result, my brain had gone into a kind of emergency retreat mode. I remember my girlfriend saying, okay, well, uh, I'll make sure that I'm quick. And me saying, take your time. What I'm feeling right now is probably gonna pass in a minute. And then, um, and then I'll just like, I'll come in and join you. And I'll just make up an excuse for being late. Of course, like, you know, I never did join them. My girlfriend, uh, you know, she did the, the smart thing and, uh, and, and decided not to mention uh, to our friends that, uh, that I was sitting alone in the car outside their house. It was a bit like, uh, it was a bit like being on a stakeout, I suppose. Out here on the street. Silently scrutinising everything. A really shit and pointless stakeout. I still get like this from time to time. Sometimes it lasts an hour or a day, or you know, at maybe worst, like a week or two. My best description is this I get tied up in my own thoughts. Various stresses and anxieties collide, and they all end up getting knotted together. And my brain just doesn't know which one to deal with first, so in response, it just decides to shut everything down. It's like my computer needs to be rebooted. And then whilst that rebooting's happening, I get immobilised. I have to sort of retreat away into myself for a while. Once, I remember, um, back in primary school, I was having a day, a bit like this one, uh, just kind of staring at an empty page in class. I must have been about like eight or nine years old. And uh, I remember my teacher taking me aside at a break time and saying, Ross, if you're feeling sad... Why don't you go and write a poem about it? Now I think back, like, mate, it is possible that my teacher was being sarcastic. 
It does sound a little bit sarcastic <laughs> when I played that back now. Oh, Ross, with all your excess emotion, why don't you go put on a frilly shirt and uh, cry over a sunset, you nine-year-old mess? <laughs> I don't listen, I don't, I don't actually know anymore. Was that genuine advice or not? Okay, well, hang on, listen. Let me, let me first try and tell you why I think it's good advice, all right? And then after that, I'll go on and I'll tell you why I think it's actually bad advice. Okay, so first of all, I think writing poetry when you're sad is good advice because, <clears throat> well, because it's a way to take melancholy and uh, kind of put it to use. Like you're taking a self-reflective mind state and pragmatically doing something with it. So you know, if your thoughts are all jammed up, like the same way that mine get, then writing can be a way of getting thoughts moving again. Also, uh, as an art form, poetry poetry is really good for holding two opposing truths at the same time. You can say, sometimes things are like this, and also sometimes things are like that. And you don't have to collapse that ambiguity. Both those truths get to coexist. So if you're feeling... Like a, like a contrary bastard. It's a really good art form to work in. Also, uh, another reason, like poems are traditionally written just for yourself. Uh, they're written for the sake of writing. They're a little self-contained creative act that don't require anybody else's involvement or judgment at all. And I, and I think that's a good thing to do uh, when you're feeling isolated. Um, if my teacher has said to me, Ross... If you're feeling sad, why don't you uh, do a bit of tinkering on that sci-fi screenplay of yours? You know, the one that's been rejected seven times in as many years. You know, the one about all the mind-reading bees. Because, you know, if she'd said that, well, then I would have definitely immediately recognised that as bad advice from the off. I would have shot that suggestion down straight away. I could have said, no thanks, Mrs Trahane. That particular work in progress doesn't exist yet, but even if it did, I can't think of anything that would make me feel worse. So, no. But being asked to write a poem, I, I, I think that's different. Because um, in just a couple of minutes of writing, um, a poem can make your world feel bigger. You've got this new little pocket dimension to play in. And for a moment, the rest of the universe suddenly can feel a little less claustrophobic. Three minutes and now there's a brand new poem in the world. And listen, if you can accomplish that with your day, then I bet there's a whole bunch of other stuff that you've been putting off that you might also start to feel ready to take a crack at. So, yeah, for those reasons, yes, writing poetry can be a good cure for the blues. Counterpoint? No, I won't write a fucking poem. Are you out of your mind? Like, when I'm depressed, I, I, I barely have the creative energy to change a TV channel. Do you think I've somehow got reserves for a quick literary composition? And, you know, and, and God forbid that I should actually try to write about depression whilst depressed. I mean, that might work for, for some people. But, but for me, writing something conjures it into being. So if I succeeded in writing anything down, then I would effectively be casting my negative thoughts into concrete. So then what? Like, so I could carry them around with me even longer. I mean, to me, that feels a little bit like summoning the demon rather than banishing it. 
but really fundamentally like when I'm in the hole a poem on any subject becomes pretty much impossible connecting any word together with any other word it just feels like a Herculean effort I mean the will is there for the reasons I just gave you know like I know it will help me but I just can't think of anything to write about the whole world it, it just sort of fades away from me and that brings us back around to where I was at the start of the episode sitting in a car on a suburban road in Essex in the car with me that day uh, I, I had my notebook uh, it was in my bag so um, so I took it out and uh, and I thought to myself you know I, I, I should try and put this time to good use like I'm here and it's happening and I, I'm not good for anything else but maybe I can try to write something and I try for a couple of minutes but basically nothing's happening can't find anything to say I'm, I'm, I'm trapped by my own inertia so instead I decide to turn on the car radio it's a commercial station Magic 105.4 playing if I remember correctly best of my love by the emotions a song, it feels intentionally designed to make happiness feel alien and strange. If this is an accurate sonic representation of the highest form of love, but I have never been there, I thought. Although, even in my self-hating hole, I was 99% sure that this version of love didn't actually exist. It's not based on anything actually real. It's like pretending you can see the colour floopal or your mate telling you they went on holiday to Swag Zealand. It's okay if you can't picture it, because it's not fucking real. Then, that's when I get uh, an idea. Uh, I, I think to myself, well, well, what if I just let this radio station tell me what to write? I can let the radio do all the work. All I have to do is sit here with my notepad and respond to whatever comes down the wire. It's like sitting by the edge of a fast-flowing river or by the side of a road during a parade. Each new song selected by the DJ is a new parade float turning the corner towards me. Right now, it's the Brian Adams' Robin Hood song float probably, I don't know, probably covered in trees with a couple of guys sitting in a big cardboard trebuchet. And then uh, the next float is the... Uh, it's the Jerry Rafferty Baker Street float, presumably some kind of giant saxophone uh, made out of smooth brown bricks surrounded by men in their late 30s sleeping on their friend's sofas. Next float is it's the David Gray Babylon float. Maybe that float is the interior of an upmarket chain restaurant with a man and a woman staring silently out of a Rain Street window. Or maybe that float 
is actually a giant model of the mysterious ancient city of Babylon. That would work, wouldn't it? You know, with its hundred gates and exotic perfumes and its corpses buried in honey. Or maybe the float is actually some sort of hybrid between those first two ideas. Anyway, the radio, it gives the illusion of motion, even when you're completely stationary. It pushes thought forwards, even when the mind has ground to a standstill. Touch of a button, and the world begins to move. You're pulled into the endless current of transmission. Now, this is an exercise that uh, you can try for yourself. You don't even have to wait until you're in some kind of depressive tailspin. Writer's block or not, you might want to give it a shot. My my personal recommendation uh, would be to try it with a commercial radio station because I think that will give you like a good mix of uh, of the familiar and uh, and the unexpected. I mean, it might work for you just listening through to your favourite album, but uh, for, for me, though, I like the radio, and I, and I think part of that has to do with heading into the unknown. You're relinquishing control to the DJ. So, I sit there, all alone, with the radio on, and Magic 105.4 flows through the car, and it flows through me. The rules of the exercise really quickly just write themselves. I have the length of the song to write about that song, reflect upon it in some way, but when the song is gone, then it's gone. That moment has passed, and we're on to the next, which just so happens to be Sultans of Swing by the band Dire Straits. Certain songs always smell of stale cigarettes. Sultans of Swing comes on the radio and I am five years old in a snooker hall. My head back at the level of ashtrays once more. That was the first thing I wrote in my notebook that night. And uh, uh, I don't write anything else until we get towards the end of uh, the next song selection, which is uh, November Rain by Kinds of Roses. Slash's guitar solo reminds me of the intricacy of my back pain. Hundreds of rippling pinpricks, like a star chart being endlessly redrawn. Slash is the patron saint of back pain. I too have been forced to excuse myself mid-wedding, my spine wailing like the wind. I don't want to be too precious about the words here. Um, I don't want to edit down the text that I wrote or, uh, or tidy it up at all. It feels important to me that you just hear the words as they originally appeared on the page. Uh, just like the radio, I kind of want this text to, uh, to just flow through space. It's a, it's a document of, of, of time passing, I suppose, first and foremost. It's like uh, a very localised poet in residence. A poetry residence lasting only 10 minutes in a freezing cold car in a miserable corner of Essex. Nevertheless, uh, this is a record of that moment. A page from the book. Noel Gallagher rhymes with 
Liam Gallagher. I mean, yeah, it's not all gold. Not a complicated rhyme. It's practically rhyming the thing with itself. I never saw the music videos of Oasis until many years later. Today, they appear to me like ridiculous educational videos about why even in cloudy cities it's important to wear sunglasses. But back in 1996, they were pretty much the only band all my friends knew the words to. It was also the music of my paper round, which means it is the music of sunrises, which means essentially it's no longer music, but something else. One of the nice things I like about this writing exercise is uh, you can feel me getting more into it as I go along. I mean, hopefully you can feel that too. I don't know how clear that is to anyone else, but uh, the lines get longer, uh, they get more playful as the radio station keeps pushing me forward. Remember when Right Said Fred sang I'm too sexy for this song? Thus causing the song to immediately stop dead as if the utterance had somehow erased the song from history altogether. Label that under greatest achievements of postmodernism. So, wh why have I chosen to travel back in time to uh, this car after all these years? Uh, well, you know, I think you've probably guessed. But, um, yeah, I've been feeling kind of similar lately. It's been a while uh, since I've, I've felt this so acutely. But um, I've been really struggling to write anything down recently. Or, or to do anything, really, if I'm honest. Now, of course, you'll realise the biggest mistake I've made right out the gate is that I've tried to get out of it by writing about it. Didn't I specifically say earlier that I wasn't meant to do that? I mean, and that's this is partly why this episode is, um, is, is going up so late. Nevertheless, I think uh, I have tried to follow some of the rest of my advice. Um, I've allowed myself space to contradict myself. I've allowed moments of opaqueness. And I mean, the whole reason why I started down this path in the first place is because I was trying to think of a positive example of a time that I wrote myself out of sadness. And, uh, and, and this was the memory that I kept coming back to. And it wasn't really a technique I ever tried again, so I wondered, maybe, maybe I could recreate that moment. Maybe, uh, maybe I could use it again, just like I'd uh, used it before. The station is running a competition called The Secret Celebrity. Someone just called in with another wrong answer. A fifth in a row. The Secret Celebrity. Can I accept such a thing exists for something to be so familiar and yet somehow unknown? A truth that cannot exist until it is said aloud. Sitting here, alone in the car. I can't believe in such things. 
imaginary. I moved to the Appalachians. The DJ for bears. Mostly playing the mellower end of stacks. Then Brian Eno each night from seven. As the sun poured itself across the valley. One night. From my decks, high up on the hillside, I watched the treetops bristle in the gloaming, the sun fading to a line of orange fur that stretched across the mountains. Garfield, I thought, and my heart grew two sizes. Everybody loves Garfield. I took this as a sign of an excellent life decision and treated the bears to music for airports. Imagining their shadows, ears swiveling, somewhere in the woods below me. Weeks passed, my set evolved. I went classical for a thunderstorm. Schubert. To keep my decks dry, I made a little roof from a broken canoe. There was no official backstage area, but I could stand behind a tree for as long as was needed. I never saw the bears, never heard their approval, but I knew they were omnivores. Wherever I played, I trusted it would take something from it. Each night, I slept beneath the turntables, handing over duties to the insect chorus, the demanding avant-garde set that played us all through to the AM. The petrol smell from the generator worked its way into everything. One night I dreamt I was in the engine room of a sinking ship. On another, I was trying to assemble a bus in a tiny lamplit garage. I woke to find a squirrel revolving on the left deck. The bell track was never quite the same after that. Winter arrived like being stabbed in a toilet. Attacking all at once, sucking the vibe out of the valley so fast that halfway through Barbecue by Wendy Rain, the song became utterly ridiculous. 
cruel even. The wind felt like a police raid. I felt the scene die beneath me as one by one the trees dissolved, exhausted, their black board skeletons twitching in the death throes of an endless, godless winter, I must confess, struggled to find the right song. Snowflakes were gathering on my vinyl repressing of Black Moses, spinning into perfect white circles of static. See, we've known each other a long time. My organs were starting to eat themselves. I guess right now you've got the last left. I found myself thinking about the Schofield Institute, the oak-panelled room where I made my initial presentation to the board. The one fellow who raised his pen as I turned off the projector, I'm sorry. he said, Don't bears hibernate through winter? No, I said. And it's questions like that that actually make this project so urgent. In black bears, it is known as torpor. They stop moving in winter, but the phenomenon is actually closer to depression than sleep. The bears remain hyper-aware of their surroundings, acoustically at least. The board member nodded thoughtfully. And what was the project length again? Four years, I said. Four years? Said another board member. Yes, I said, putting on my jacket in a singular movement and exiting the room. Most days I would look down the hillside into the screaming grey void and think about the unspoken terrible consequences of being such a charismatic public speaker. One day, for reasons that now escape me, I climbed the tree above my camp. I remember gasping as a giant orange bird flew over my head and then I saw it was actually the carrier bag I kept my dirty tissues in. For warmth, I began to wear every item of clothing from my suitcase at the same time. I was now Significantly more bear-shaped, I realise, which, perhaps, made me more relatable. After all, a DJ needs to feel their crowd. One mind, one body. I tried to picture the bears, paralysed in the forest below, their emptiness like little black holes in the fog. I let their hunger pulse through me, my dead blue fingers now tracing the spines of my records. Yes, yes, I thought, I feel you now, I know what you need. I clawed free the record from my trunk, 
Hotspot by Foxy Brown. But as the needle fell into the groove, I realized that I had gone insane. The walls between DJ and song had collapsed inside my mind. Hang on, I thought, staring into the forest below me. Am I Foxy Brown? Is this mountain clearing the hot spot? As if my body was now no more than a needle being pulled through a groove. The mountains remoulding themselves upon my own sad frequency. Eventually, life returned to the valley. Though, uh, I can't say for certain how long it took me to notice. I'd been playing cotton-eyed Joe at the wrong speed on a permanent loop for really as long as I could remember. Every other record I owned had ended up strewn across the hilltop. My music trunk had been turned over completely. There was at least a hundred records scattered halfway down the hill. The records now looked like little square patches of ice slowly thawing in the sun. My DJ booth had collapsed, so now my turntables were flat against the earth with me lying on my belly in front of it. I lifted the tone arm and uh, put it down again. Somehow, my sleeping bag ended up snared in the tree above me. I think at some point I had been throwing my records at the sleeping bag, trying to dislodge it, I guess. I'd even lost my special lucky medallion that I always wore whilst DJing. (laughs) Maybe a bird got it. My phone was dead. I looked at my reflection in the glass. My left eye was all milky now, presumably dead. I had a couple of flesh wounds from that fight with the squirrel. Plus, my whole face was covered in scratches from branches. I looked like a semi-completed jigsaw of a very tired, ugly person. And then... Then I saw him, over the shoulder of my reflection, watching me, his nose to the ground, hiding in the shade of a sourwood tree, its blossom the colour of fake blood. He was small in size, a delinquent, most probably, a bear on his own path. I could tell, unafraid of the world. To see this bear with my own eyes, it was the same moment that I could finally admit to myself 
that I had stopped believing in any bears a long, long time ago. How long had he been listening? I stopped Cotton Eye Joe. Without reading too much into his face and pose, I could tell that this bear was clearly some kind of cultural pioneer. The kind of bear whose hunger crossed all senses, forever searching for something new, something powerful. Yes. Yes, and right there, between us, I could see just what he needed. As slow as I could, I rolled over onto my back, stretching out until my fingers grazed the record, half buried in the mud. Carefully, my fingers teased the vinyl from its sleeve. I rolled slowly back onto my front and silently placed the record on the spindle. I lifted the needle and held my breath. the bear. It was now sitting up on its haunches, ears raised. The bear did a little huffy nose scratch. The bear um, did not begin to dance. Uh, no, no, not even, not even a gentle sway the way that a grandma might dance in the final hour of a wedding. Not even that. The expression on its face was hard to unpack at first. A kind of pained scowl. It was the kind of look one gives an out-of-order vending machine or a departure board when all the flights turn red. And slowly, a familiar feeling returned to me. I remember feeling exactly the same way when I was 14 years old and accidentally said, Yes, Mum, to my trampoline instructor, and then had to fake a heart attack to avoid further embarrassment. Or the feeling when I gave 12 grand cash to a guy to import lots of German ping-pong tables, then realising he'd signed the receipt, Foggy Dumbledore. All the time I quit my job to write a sci-fi novel and ended up in counselling for masturbation addiction for three years. I saw in the scowl of that bear such overwhelming disappointment which I suppose is another way of saying I saw myself. 
The bear didn't leave, I might add. Nor did it approach and eat my head, though it could have. It stayed exactly where it was, hating me with everything it could muster. I put out my hand and picked up another record. Imaginary So, uh, that's all from Imaginary Advice this month. Uh, if you'd like to help me keep the lights on around here, you can donate money to my patron page. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash Ross G Sutherland. Uh, thank you. Thank you to all the people that donate to the show and help me keep making this. I, I, I literally couldn't do it without you. Uh, there's some bonus stuff coming to patron supporters soon. Um, one bonus episode to $5 supporters plus uh, two bonus things for $15 a month supporters um, yeah so look out for that if you can't financially support the show absolutely fine um, but if you would still like to help me out in some way talking about the show with your mates or the people at your um, at your local Pilates class or a fight club uh, anything that you say uh, to help spread the word yeah, it can be a really great help to me this song, this is uh, "The Orbit" by Speedy J. It's meant to be played at 33 RPM, but I'm playing it at 45, so now it sounds like a fucking banger. Isn't it great? There was a lesson in there somewhere, right? About that. I don't quite. I can't quite put my finger on it. Uh, but uh, well, we'll have to wait till next time. Uh, that's all from me. I'll be back soon uh, with more. Oh, my name's Ross Sutherland. I didn't mention that in the episode. Uh, my name's Ross. Okay. Glad I got it in there. I'll be back soon with more imaginary advice. Thank you.